0: Welcome to the Westside Personalized Podcast, where real educators share their classroom-tested, learner-approved personalization practices. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and are able to find a few valuable takeaways from the podcast. And so without further ado, let's go to the pod! All right, the Westside Personalized Podcast is back this week, and I'm so excited to have Allison Zamuda joining us for the podcast. Uh, An opportunity, uh, really, to not only just talk personalized learning and talk shop, which I'm I'm really amped for, but uh, also to preview some sessions for the Westside Personalized Summit that's going to be coming up here a month from today, actually, is when it kickstarts on May 29th and 30th. And so, uh, Allison, and knowing your background a little bit with uh, having written the book, Students at the Center, uh, and could you tell us a little bit just uh, about, uh, for, for people, there'll be people listening to the podcast yeah. who are familiar with your work, people who are not. And so to kind of give us a little bit of um, your backstory with personalized sure. learning and, and this type of practice.
1: Thanks. And um, thank you so much, Andrew, for inviting me to join in with you. And just a quick background about me. I'm a little bit of an odd doc. I'm one of those rare people that went right from being a classroom teacher, high school social studies in Newtown Public Schools in Newtown, Connecticut, to uh, a consultant around curriculum assessment and instructional design. So I have my um, old school traditional roots, actually, with Jay McTie and the departed Grant Wiggins in understanding by design. And so when you're trying to think about that broader conception of backwards design and goal-centered, driven-centered learning, that's basically my roots, not just from a classroom teacher, but also a consultant. And so when you're starting to think about and and uh, interested in personalized learning, you can start to see that as I started to imagine and conceive of personalized learning, it still had that flavor of goal-centered, backward designed mentality. So I've been after this as a consultant for about 18 years now. And again, it's just been such a privilege and a pleasure to work with states around the country on really thoughtfully centered programs such as the one that we're going to engage in in the um, May 29th and 30th at Westside so thank you.
0: Yeah no we we're, we're thrilled to be able to have you out for that and uh, we are just very excited too for we have a great lineup of, of presenters and uh, yeah. uh to talk a little bit about goal setting then and what that means because that that is certainly on message with personalized learning as we've come to sort of implement it here within Westside community schools delve into that further, I guess. And As as far as like in practice, like what what is the the value of goal setting, which I think we all sort of know, but I mean to just sort of open up that conversation here um, as it pertains to your work.
1: So it's interesting because I think this is a a timeless practice that many teachers have been engaging in for a couple of a couple of years, long before personalized learning was a gleam in anybody's
0: eye. And I
1: think the intention is that we understand and appreciate that by articulating in language that is accessible to students and uh, goal-centered or goal-focused, we do that on behalf of the learners. So we might identify a particular goal or expectation. We may throw it on the board, whether it was sort of an old-school chalkboard, whiteboard, or board, but at the same time, really starting to think about and pay attention to how does the goal that we set out and articulate directly connected to the thinking, the assignment, the problem, the challenge? So to me, from a timeless point of view, really starting to make sure that first and foremost, the goals that we set are very active and meaningfully connected to the work that kids are doing in the short term. And we provide feedback on that goal in shaping and thinking and and talking through the work. And again, I think to me, that is a primary area of focus, regardless of whether you're thinking about learner agency or not. As you're starting to move into the idea of learner agency, we have to step back and think about whose goal is it? Meaning that the students don't necessarily need to write their own goals, but the students need to understand and appreciate the need for the goal that has been written on their behalf. They can actually see the value of it because they actually have an understanding uh, or at least a fledgling understanding of the topic, the problem, the issue, or the theme. The second part of actually uh, generating a goal is really grounded in the analysis of student work to determine or articulate what may be an appropriate goal given their level of work so far. So that's the way of beginning to make inroads into the goal setting process. But I think the second most important piece is that the students are the stewards of monitoring the health they are in in relation to that goal. So if we have better information from students on what they're doing and how they're feeling in relation to the goal, then we as educators can make better and more informed instructional moves suggestions to continue to help students feel supported along the way instead of overly scaffolded along
0: the way and so in the support of students being able to pursue those goals uh, mm-hmm. and then eventually yeah sort of set, set and self-monitor those along the way it's obviously going to come both in the form of like dialogue with the student and building a relationship there but uh, is there's all, is there also sort of like a Uh, I mean, do you promote like handouts or some sort of like tracking document for these goal setting conferences or how does it sort of work as you come to understand it? And I'm sure it's a little bit different level to level and district to district, but just generally speaking. So
1: one of the things that I am a big advocate for are one-to-one conferences where the student and the teacher sit down and are partnering in analysis of student work and identification of those goals. And again, it's incredibly important. You can start to see the power of that in a first grade classroom where students typically and regularly look at the work that's been happening so far and engage in those conferences. It starts to become much more complicated when you have a a secondary classroom teacher. When I was um, in the classroom, I had a caseload typically of about 135 students. So, how can you even begin to imagine? (laughs) sure how to orchestrate that with a sort of a scope of a 47 minute period so the answer is (laughs) very strategically and very carefully and the opportunity of starting to think about how can we actually get students to engage in the thinking with us but not necessarily be grounded in these um Regular weekly face-to-face conferences. So the intention of really trying to think about and play out How do we start to establish relationships with students so that we understand and appreciate? What are helpful tracking tools for them? Because as Mm -hmm. they continue to grow older, they're starting to get a gauge of what is a better fit for them and potentially these kinds of tracking experiences can be done, not just within our own classroom work, but can be a helpful guide with a a, a part-time job, with um, trying to figure out how to gain potential admission into post-secondary programs, et cetera. So I'm a, a firm believer in virtual tracking tools, also thinking about tracking tools that are directly connected to collaboration. So, and there are a ton of them out there, whether it's sort of old school, timeless Google Docs mm-hmm. or something um, that is more app oriented. It really just depends on the scope of the district.
0: I love looking at the elementary and the secondary examples there. I know even within our own district, one of my favorite stories comes from one of our kindergarten teachers in district who uh, decided to do as a result of kind of our message and, and hanging out in our training uh, to go back and implement uh, like goal setting with our kindergartners which is I mean, how challenging for five-year-olds to be able to sort of have that vision. And uh, it was really cool. She told the story about how she started those conversations on the playground. And so they said, okay, you know, what uh, goal do you have to get better? Like what, where could you stand to improve? You know, at, at some aspect of something out at recess. And so someone said the swings or the monkey bars or whatever the case may be. Uh, and then for them to go out and actively one recess a day, uh, you know, have action steps, even they like had those conversations towards yeah. trying to achieve said goal. Uh, they would have celebrations when an individual and even at the end of the week when they would meet it and when finally, when everyone in the class had met their playground goal, they applied those same principles to reading uh, and It was <laughs> really powerful way. to see how then they were able to translate you know that experience that made sense to them in the in the physical world then now into sort of their academic experience and that story always just gets me really excited to think that. We can do this work uh, with five-year-olds uh, in October of their first semester. All the way through.
1: I've seen um, third graders start drafting SMART goals. And so the interesting thing is the, the, the capacity of what goal setting and, and the journey to achieve those goals is stunning because it's grounded in accomplishment. And I think the interesting part is that Kids know when they have continued to work hard and do something of value. And it's not necessarily directly connected to a mark or score. It's actually much more intrinsically driven. And so I think the interesting part of creating parameters uh, as an educator to think through and figure out how can I support goal setting? And I think sometimes we go way too far to the other extreme, saying kids are going to be designing all their own goals in relation to this particular unit. I think it really has to be a very blended, balanced approach. They need to know what a good goal looks like. And so I think the other part is that a teacher, whether they're um, a first grade teacher when they're working on single digit addition, or whether they're a high school teacher designing designing a goal in biology, Continuing to emphasize what a goal is and what a goal isn't. So, a goal isn't, I want to get better at X.
0: <laughs> right. Um,
1: a, go- a goal is um, something that is clearly defined and it's actionable.
0: Mm-hmm. We have conversations in district two, and it, it becomes more of a secondary conversation where uh, is it some teachers have, because we give our teachers a little bit of ownership to kind of pick what they're comfortable with in terms of implementation. And so, for some of them, goal setting becomes more of a long-term kind of academic like growth right. goal and some people have done even daily daily goals just to for time management and organizational purposes uh, and I love yeah that conversation that has come up where if we set daily even smart goals and some students will say well you know what are you going to do today uh, I'm going to read well great you can read <laughs> right. two words and you're going to accomplish your goal like like we need a little bit more than that and so yeah, right. um, you know they say well, I'm going to read 70 pages and they get to the, end of the class and they realize they can only read even with their best effort, 30 during their class time. Right. Uh, it's interesting to watch the ownership that accompanies those, th- that dialogue uh, yeah. and just by giving the students a space to be able to have a vision for where they want to go uh, right. and the understanding of how to refine that over the duration of their experience.
1: Well, I think the other part is I've had um, just such a, a, a beautiful connection with Ben over the past Um, six years now. And I think the interesting part of focusing on behaviors and attitudes and dispositions are probably equally, if not more important in um, growing the culture of thinking in the classroom, but also those post-secondary essential skills that employers are craving and citizens definitely need. So trying to think hard about listening with understanding and empathy So making sure that there is this kind of meaningful balance between goals that are driven by a curricular content area so that we're focused on a a better understanding of the historical roots of injustice. That would be an example that could be Mm -hmm. a broad frame for a particular U.S. history class, whether it's eighth grade or 11th grade. But you're also starting to think about perspective taking. It's incredibly important to start thinking about whose story is this in relation to the stories that that are coming across, whether we have uh, a textbook in play or we're, we're sort of trying to supplement that looking at multiple primary sources or trying to make parallels from what's happening right now to what event we're currently looking at. So I think it's interesting to start to continue to quietly emphasize that the playground goal of um, trying to get better or actually get hang on to the monkey bars, mm-hmm. it, is, it really does require something in addition. It's that level of persistence or commitment. So maybe monkey bars are definitely not my cup of tea. Um, or I can hang on the monkey bar, but I can't figure out how to move from one monkey bar to another. Sure. What kinds of other goals are directly connected to that? And continuing to practice on the monkey bars may actually be less effective than building some general upper body strength so that you can yeah, then go push-ups. <laughs> exactly. that's what I was thinking about. And so I think that's the the interesting thing of trying to step back and figure out if I can't move to that second monkey bar, I don't necessarily need to, to quit. I may need to step back and think flexibly about it and try to think through and figure out, not be jealous of a kid that can sort of fly through them, but starting to think about what are the muscles that are involved in, in moving across this? And how mm-hmm. might I continue to build those up in a different way than trying to move from one bar to the next?
0: Uh, and I mean, zooming out a little bit too, therein lies the art of teaching, I feel right. like, right? right? This reminds me of a conversation I had, well, two weekends ago, I actually went back to my hometown and had a, a conversation with my friend's wife, who she's um, phenomenal. She's into coding, programming, and it's been very successful. And she uh, got into a dialogue with me about how she's waiting for education to get to the place where you know, you could essentially beam videos out to everyone and everyone could just autonomously go through their work and accomplish things. And, and I try to at least, though, I think that there is a little bit of a value to those as, in terms of resources. Right. Um, but uh, there's so much to be said for, I don't know, some of the skills you can learn that way are skills that are applicable towards the jobs that these students are going to go out and try to achieve, but a number of them aren't. And so uh, I think that type of instruction does not lead to the type of skills that, that are that are going to be required or like asked of them. Uh, and we as practitioners are not just here to facilitate activities, but uh, to do exactly what you're talking about. And that's to be sensitive to the individual, and but also to have a perspective ourselves that's broad enough to realize when that person needs to stop trying to go from rung to rung and back to push-ups. <laughs> and, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and to talk them through what, what that looks like. So uh, well, I couldn't agree well, more.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because um, another session that I'm going to be um, working with at the Westside Summit is around instructional planning. And starting to think about the difference between individualized, which is uh, in, in my world, typically more software platform generated mm-hmm. versus something <clears throat> that is very much Developed mindful of the students in front of you. So you're engaging work with the students. So I I, want to clarify that any kind of software platform is an important um, part of personalized learning. I wouldn't even say resource. But once it, it actually is a substitute for the curriculum design it starts becoming very dangerous. And I know some of the technological pushes right now in terms of trying to figure out how to line up a set of learning experiences that kids are moving through that will demonstrate their proficiency. To me, when you're starting to move in that road, it doesn't go after the beauty of the monkey bars conversation that we just had. Because I think the interesting part about uh, platforms like con or platforms like summit um, potentially the power of those programs are clear barometers of uh, what a topic is what a series of questions or problems that are related to that topic based on the sort of quick virtual instruction and clear markers of accomplishment But at the same time, to what extent are those accomplishments being treated from a learner point of view as more of an efficiency move? And kids actually can be very excited about accomplishment, but that Mm -hmm. level of accomplishment oftentimes is more fleeting in nature. So to, to what extent are kids moving through a particular sequence of topics, but they're not necessarily using their immediate procedural fluency or information they've learned and applying that in more sophisticated and skillful ways. So one of the things that I I always think about when it comes to um, working with schools on personalized learning is really trying to think about the resources that you have, as well as starting to think about what does the student actually are interested in or fascinated by within the context of the particular content area curriculum.
0: As you're talking, I just got like a million different ideas about other things to bring up related to it. Like on the one hand, uh, you sort of, in your explanation, I think justified why Michael Matera is going to join us for the conference. Uh, I love the ways in which gamification and the way in which people look at game design and what motivates people to play games has an overlap with what we'd like to sort of foster within... Um, This even a personalized dynamic, you know, Bartles, um, four gamer types, one of those uh, is your achiever, right? And so you're going to have these programs out there where, gosh, students that that that's really how they're wired are going to love the fact that they can put a list together and line those things up and knock those things down. Uh, But there are also other people who are motivated by being socializers or explorers or if that's kind of really where where your heart is when it comes to your pursuits of the things that you get passionate about. Um, sort of the one size fits all system uh, might might leave the humanity out of that in a a way that keeps you from being able to connect Uh, and another another idea too that I really like uh, that I kind of heard in in your comment there too there's a quote that we bring up as a part of our training where we said I think it's by Pete Hall where he said that uh, shifted action doesn't always result in shifted thinking that's really compliance right (laughs) (laughs) But shifted thinking always results in shifted action and to set standards and assignments for you to try to j- jump up and meet um, in terms of like a compliance or action sense doesn't necessarily mean that you're growing in a way that's going to equip you with the skills necessary to be successful uh, as a learner for the rest of your life.
1: Uh, absolutely, Andrew. And I, I think we're, we're trying to, at the end of the day, grow a culture of thinking, whether we're growing a culture of thinking as an individual Or we're growing a culture of thinking as part of a a, a microcosm of society whether it's with a small group of students whether it's between a teacher and a student or whether we're talking about a global exchange so the the interesting part of, of what you just described is really starting to figure out how to actually shift the thinking and I think that to me, one of the things that I've uncovered, um, not just through my own uh, professional work, but also thinking about my own two kiddos and thinking about life personally, is that personalized learning at its very core is personal. And oftentimes um, that is glossed over in some um, people's approach or some philosophies around that. I I think that we have to have some kind of common understanding of what it is that we're aiming for, because we're not aiming as classroom teachers to actually be managers of learning. That's not exciting. Nobody wakes up in the morning and say, gosh, I can't wait to actually see if kids are compliant with how they're moving. So that's not something that's fascinating. Right. But I think at the same time, to start to figure out, well, if it's not that, then what is it? There has to start being this kind of um, uh, balances. So it has to be, there has to be a level of structure and freedom. There has to be a level of um, exploration and, and deep dives. And so, when you're starting to think about that, it's those dynamics are as true for our, our young students as they are true for our older students. And mm-hmm. they're also true for classroom teachers as well. Oh, no. as yes, this is exactly
0: where I was going to go. Keep going. Right. I'm totally yeah, I
1: think the idea is that if we're truly uh, moving into a space of personalizing, then it has to live uh, at the very top of the system all the way down to the grassroots and trying to think about how are we continuing to treat that as an aspiration regardless of my job description. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and that's part of it's just that in the last two years in our district, I've been in a role where I support teachers and I'm just, I just brainstorm. I'm essentially a consultant within district. And it's, it's yeah. been super rewarding. Post
1: the notes behind
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly. And it, uh, yeah it really causes you as you start to talk about this work for students 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 and you work more with teachers 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 you do see that this is something that really all of us all of us need to feel um wake up every morning to love what we do to go to work with a passion and and to really care about to care about our work enough to be able to invest the time necessary to move things in the direction that it needs to go Uh, and it's a little bit disheartening sometimes because i i think we there's been some instances where we've had conversations too about what it means you really have to trust your teachers to give them that kind of flexibility and freedom and and you're asking them at the same time to trust their students as well and so i i would hope that kind of from the top top down uh, that we start to understand that everyone is going to need a different level of support and scaffolding uh, when it comes to the autonomy and this like balance of, of structure and direction meets freedom i guess um, right. yeah. I'm not articulating this very well, but you know where I'm going, I, I, That's I, right. hopefully. That's
1: right. So we're definitely having a mind meld, Andrew, because I think the power of this is to, again, it, it's not full autonomy. We're, we're trying to make sure that we, we're not moving from one extreme to another. So yes, I am firm believers that you have to trust teachers, but that doesn't mean that they have now sort of a, a carte blanche to be independent freelancers. Mm-hmm. And they're, maybe they need to be freelancers in service to a handful of commitments that they're making as they work in a particular site level, as well as within a system. And so trying to think through and figure out from the state of Nebraska's point of view, what are the expectations or aims they have, not mm-hmm. just within a content area, but What are the broader aims they have? So I'm working with um, a a school division in the state of Virginia over the next couple days. And they actually want to pay attention to develop a teaching and learning framework. Teaching and learning framework should be broad enough that it has legitimacy from a kindergarten teacher all the way up through a high school teacher, but also free enough for them to be able to think through What pedagogical moves am I making in service to that broader framework? Mm -hmm. So we're not trying to create um, (laughs) uh, cookie cutters of one another by any way, shape, or form. It not only um, sort of uh, dampens the level of creativity teachers feel, but it's also not meaningfully connected to the students they have in front of them or the philosophy they have that is so significant based on their subject area perspective. So trying to think about that kind of, again, this kind of structure and freedom tension is a beautiful way of continuing to frame that out. And there are a lot of folks that actually prefer a lot more structure than others. And there are a lot of people that really say, any structure you put on me, I take as an affront. So actually continuing to draft not just that openness to Uh, growing a culture of innovation and creativity within your classroom teachers, but also continuing to unearth what are the qualities that we all can agree to in service to this level of creativity? And then potentially, how do we support teachers that need a level of structure or parameter without necessarily imposing that upon people that find it to be less helpful.
0: And that gray area in between these two extremes that we're talking about, as, and I think as educators we will acknowledge that this is true about students and hopefully we can zoom back enough to like realize it's true about ourselves as well, but that there's a patience that we don't always give or grace maybe uh, when it comes to how we go about our own development through the trial and error, like the, like that we're all going to need to fail in different ways in the shift to getting to a place where we do find that happy medium. Right. So the person who's at the creative extreme uh, might need to go to a little bit of a creative extreme and realize, well, we got more structure, we need a couple of pieces <laughs> built in, where you're going to really have to work with the person on the other end who who wants to um, who's comfortable with the control of the traditional. I think sometimes Matt Miller gave a, you know, that I reference often where he talks uh, about how it was really difficult for him uh, to, to give these things over, right? The things that he had, it, it's so much safer to just teach for 20 minutes and everyone sits there quietly and you have one activity that everybody does, that you have all the answers for, and, <laughs> and then the bell rings and you move things along. And uh, and, and so the The growth process for that person is going to be taking chances in the area of letting things go Uh, and knowing that it might only happen in one instance for one lesson or one unit like for this semester or something in that small of a context, but being invested to say it's okay if it takes this person a while to get to a place where, yeah, where both of these components are working together in in a way for them professionally and for the students in their learning experience. Uh, that is really balanced, and um, I think I, an ideal.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it, it's important when we're looking at um, the growth of teachers, starting to pay attention to small moves and small routines. So I I prefer um, to focus on something that is not fleeting, uh, meaning it's not necessarily just um, I'm revising one unit at a time, and then over the scope of eight years, <laughs> yeah. i have fixed everything. Um, because so many things will have shifted and changed, including state frameworks. Um, Mm -hmm. So really trying to think about on an instructional routine level, what's a small move that I can make right now to demonstrate to students that I need them to think with me, as opposed to me thinking on their behalf and them being in a passive role. So a a concrete example is thinking about um, uh, prompts, whether it's an approach in math, like to develop math talks that are going after student voice and explanation, or it's the ability to have a set of prompts that can help me guide my thinking as I'm doing a close read of a text. The interesting part of those kinds of um, moments is that when teachers better better communicate or expect the level of thinking they want on behalf of students and create some structure or consistency, then you can start to see the kind of thinking and, and conversation that can emerge. So I, it, again, to me, I think it's a small move in that just posting something up on the wall or on your smart board doesn't do it. Right. Um, modeling what it looks like doesn't do it but allowing kids to start to see the conversations and connections and the teacher starting to see, if I step back and not interfere, what are the moments that are unexpected and worthy of documenting? So I I think really um, from a teacher's point of view, especially when it comes to letting go, is really starting to observe more, more often. And see what are students able to do with a little bit of prompting. And when is it worthy enough for me to stop and interfere or stop and interject. And even if it's just that, that to me starts moving into a space of personalizing. Mm -hmm. And you're starting to be more curious about what they're thinking than actually sharing what you're thinking.
0: Yeah, you're being responsive to their process versus initiating it with your own.
1: And when we think about pacing, pacing guides, pacing is really based on something that we've designed um, on behalf of the students. But the pace of learning, as we very well know, once you are in the thick of it, once you're giving them that first um, question or prompt or experience, all of a sudden the pace is very much their pace and you will find out that two kids in the room have accelerated beyond the scope of that day's lesson, but potentially a couple of (laughs) these. And now how are we going to address the fact that we have very different kids in very different places? And instead of um, burying our head in the sand and continuing to move through that party line, whether that party line is project-based experience or that party line is uh, focusing on a procedural skill, How are we moving to better understand and recognize the fact that kids are in wildly different places? And guess what? That's true right now. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that we we are actively excavating for that, but it's always true. Right. So trying to make sure that it feels healthier from a student's point of view. Every kid deserves to be uncomfortable. Is that weird for me to say?
0: No, that's, I think it's, but it's essential.
1: It it is, because I think the the challenge of having work be way too easy or way too hard, you can get used to that. And if work always feels hard, you get kids saying, well, I'm not a mathematician, or I really hate reading, or I'm really not good at art. So these kind Mm -hmm. of sweeping generalizations that are reinforced over and over again. But if the work's too easy, then kids are not accustomed to struggle They're not accustomed to actually racking their brains. They don't have to think flexibly about anything. And so that's an interesting dynamic of trying to make sure that every student deserves to be in a space where they're presented with a problem or a challenge that they don't know what to do. And that's really how you're growing their their content territory. But that's also how you're growing the culture of thinking.
0: Oh, this is... uh... I'm I'm coming to your sessions. That's all I gotta say. Like, um, so this is a great conversation. I really appreciated, uh, yeah, getting a chance to to explore all these different ideas here. And uh, thank you. I I want to do like a little preview, I guess, of your sessions Cause I, I and also just to sort of respect the time because I find sometimes we get on these podcasts like right now, uh, <laughs> go ahead and chat. We could talk all day. Uh, yeah, we're we're time. nerding out
1: right we're, now. So. <laughs>
0: Um, but part of our our goals for this podcast is to sort of say yeah. some of the things that you're gonna, you're going to share, and so do you want to give a little bit of a preview of some of those sessions and you did a little bit earlier yeah, uh,
1: and, and I think we we've sort of touched on the the two primary areas I'm going to be focusing on in the in the workshop, so I'm going to do one on um instructional planning and, and the the role of the teacher and the role of the student within that, and then the second part is really focusing on goals and goal setting. And I, I think in the keynote, I, to me, I, I honestly want to humanize personalized learning. And the power of what Jim Rickabaugh has been doing uh, is just extraordinary. And you know, I had an opportunity to spend a little time with him in Wisconsin. And, and, and the interesting part of it is really trying to think through and figure out how do we continue to build a culture of understanding and a common vision for what it is that we're after, whether um, a fourth grade classroom teacher or whether um, a building principal or an instructional leader charged with um, growing the capacity to personalize in different aspects of the system, whether you're focusing on professional development or whether you're focusing on supporting a culture of reading with English language learners. So, so to me, that's the important role of starting to clarify and and um, create a network of folks that are after the same broader aims. And I think the power of of going after this through. Um, a game design lens, the power of going after this through a software platform lens, you know, portfolios, for example, are a significant aspect of this. So starting to think about learner management systems and how we're engaging not just this as a reporting mechanism for students, but how are we engaging families in this? How are we actually creating systems of um accomplishment that students are more and more the facilitators of. So those are the kinds of uh, areas that I'm going to be focusing on when I'm hanging out with you.
0: Yeah Uh, doesn't it feel like that sort of right now where we're we're just still just kind of figuring this out and and innovation tends to come from taking like you're saying someone who looks at the world through gamification and then pairing it with something that doesn't always like have that component to it or uh, the software piece or you know as our technology continues to grow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This so, is, it's exciting time. Things are headed in a in a really unique direction. Um, as much as we're a, a profession of pendulum swings.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, I'm I'm gearing up to to write my twelfth uh, and potentially thirteenth book right now. And one of the interesting things about my history with working with authors is, I I like to grow thinking with folks. And so trying to every every book that I've written has had a different author that I think with and it's it's not intentional it's not on purpose but oh. at the same time it's it's trying to think about combinatory play and the idea that even in the conversation Andrew that you and I've had the way that you're thinking continues to transform my thinking and trying to create experiences like that so I'm not um, going to in, in the summit to be the one that supposedly has all the answers. I'm actually there as a learner, even though I'm probably going to spend a little more time talking than everybody else is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's uh yeah, I've appreciated so much um, podcasts, like the one that we're having right now. Anytime I get to work with teachers um, for the same reasons, you know, yeah. we're, we're all learning and getting better together. And so uh, uh, Allison, I, I could not be more, just thrilled and excited for you to you. go and have those conversations and for us to have a chance to learn together here may 29th and 30th and thank you so much for taking the time um, to not only share what those conversations are going to be about but really to give us a little bit of a taste of your story here okay. um and where you come from as it pertains to this topic and uh and i've enjoyed our, our chat it's been really great well
1: thanks so much and it was it was a lovely conversation and looking forward to seeing you in person
0: awesome Yep. Yeah. well uh, thank you so much thanks well, that's a wrap on another great episode. For more information or to contact us directly, you can email our team at personalized.learning at westside66.net. As always, thanks for tuning in and learning from the Westside Personalized Podcast.